David, I'm a compulsive reader and also a recovering bulimic. Yeah. Just for, um, well, thank you, Tony, for asking me to come back to Kitchen Sink. It's really an honor to be here. Just to qualify, I've been abstinent for two years and two months. My abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. I eat three meals a day. I call in my food every day. I commit my food at the end of the day. Um, and abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception, no matter what. And because one day at a time I make abstinence the most important thing without exception, I get to live a life that's beyond my wildest dreams. And I get to live a life where I'm really free from the food exception, through food obsession, one day at a time. And, um, you know, yesterday I was at work and I had to pick up cupcakes for a co-worker. And, you know, I went into this place called Frosted, right by Melrose. It's awesome. And I picked up a dozen cupcakes. And, you know, I had these cupcakes on my lap driving back to work. And I was just like, what a miracle, man. What a freaking miracle that I have these 12 cupcakes on my lap. And I'm not even cold at all because it's not my food. And I went. And, you know, we had a whole celebration for him. And we all, like, came around and sang happy birthday. And, um, you know, afterwards, everyone went to the kitchen. They started eating the cupcakes. And he was at his desk still working. And because everybody else was in the food, I realized that nobody, like, thought to give him a cupcake. <laughs> and, like, this cupcake was about to get eaten. And I, like, <laughs> put it on a plate and I brought it over to him. And I was like, happy birthday, man. Well, that's what recovery is all about. You know, because I'm not in the food, I'm able to be of service for another person. And, you know, my life was never like that. And um, I know a lot of you guys know my story. I just found out this is being recorded, and I think that's awesome. So I guess I'm going to speak to my sister today, um, who's my Eskimo on the program. She's been in and out of the rooms for probably a decade, um, and she's in her first 30 days. And I know she's going to be listening to this, and I just really want um, to give her some hope and to know that she's not alone. And, you know, for a lot of us, our stories before coming into these rooms is that we feel so alone, and we feel like we're the only people that have this thing. And um, I brought my journal entry. I've read this a couple of times. It's from the day before I got abstinent, abstinent two years ago. And it says, 11-23-2010, 3.20 p.m. Another binge today, another wasted day. Bag of dried mangoes, 540 calories. Bag of banana chips, 2,400 calories. Bag of freeze-dried bananas, 540 calories. Bag of freeze-dried pineapples, 520 calories. One bag of dried pineapple rings, 720 calories. One whole jar of almond butter, 2,660 calories. Grand total, 7,380 calories. I'm lonely as fuck, probably because I hate myself. Sitting at the Santa Monica Pier, watching everyone around me laugh and smile. Why is everyone happy except for me? Why can't I be normal? Why do I have to eat 7,000 effing calories in a sitting? I hate myself. I pray that one day my food will be moderate and clean. I think I want to run the marathon. I think it would be good for me to get a goal and reach it. 
And I remember, it's like, if I jump, everything will be okay tomorrow. And, you know, I thought about jumping, but my next thought was, but nobody's going to show up at my funeral. What five-year-old thinks like that? What five-year-old thinks about killing themselves? And what five-year-old thinks about nobody going to show up at their funeral? You know, only a compulsive overeater. So I turned to the food, and I ate, and I ate, and I ate, and my after-school and my after concoction turned into the before-school concoction, too. And then during school, and then late at night, and then all day long. And I became the fat kid in school. You know, I was a short, like, fat blob, um, probably 60 pounds overweight, and I had all the nicknames growing up. And, you know, I was told that Pillsbury Doughboy, people used to grab my man boobs, and then I was punching chicken, and people used to sing a song to me. And I couldn't even see my own penis in the shower. Like, that's how bad it was. And I remember one year, I came back from summer break, and everybody started calling me Beluga, and they would sing the song to me. And I was like, what the heck is a Beluga? I was like 10 years old. And I, I remember walking to the library after school one day, a mile to the library, and I asked the librarian what a beluga was. And she gave me a book, and I looked. And I remember sitting down in the children's section and opening up the book, and it said belugas are like whales that get that have up to 3,500 pounds of blubber. And I closed the book, and I was just demoralized. And I knew that like all along, everybody had been making fun of me. And I went home and stuffed my face with food. And then I went up to my room and I cried about being alone. And then I went downstairs and I ate over the fact that I was alone. And then I ate over the fact that I was eating over the fact of being alone. And then I would just eat over the shame. And you know, that was my life. I had no friends. I was just an absolute wreck and I was in my head all day long. And it's like, people are making fun of me for being fat, but I'm still eating because people are making fun of me for being fat. And it's like, I feel bad about myself for being fat, so I eat and make myself fatter. And um, how much time is left? Ten left. All right. I don't really want to talk about the past that much more, but I found diet pills when I was like 12 years old. My sister, who was older, um, was a bulimic and had connecting room. And I used to hear her growing up every night. And I wanted what she had. And I went into her room one night and I found her pills. And, you know, started with one pill and I faced a progressive illness. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was probably taking 15 diet pills a day. I was a three-sport athlete. I was exercising five hours a day. I was binging every day. Um, I was either binging or starving or purging or thinking about how I was going to get rid of it. And, um, you know, I had a total inability to form partnerships with anybody else. Like it says in the big book. And, you know, this continued to college. I went to four different colleges in four different years, just always moving whenever I got close to people. And um, by the time I was a senior in college, I was failing out of college. I had no friends. I had no relationships with anybody else. I had no intimacy. And I was living in Manhattan, and I was just going from Whole Foods on you know, the lower east side to the one in Union Square to the one in Midtown to the one in the Upper West Side to the one in Harlem. Binge, 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 binge. And then I'd go down to my 24-hour gym at like 11 at night. And I'd exercise for four hours and then take the subway back to Brooklyn. And I'd just have my head down and it looked like everybody around me was happy and free and in relationships. And I'd go home and binge. And I'd say, I'm not going to do this tomorrow. And I'd wake up 
and you know, I'd clear all the food out in my house, and I'd walk to the subway, and I'd end up stopping at a bagel shop, and there went again. And um, one day I was just like, I'm done. You know, I'm done. I'm gonna kill myself. Like, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing to live for. My family is not talking to me. I have no friends. I have no belief in a higher power. I have no hope, and I have no future. I can't even get through a day of school. And um, I went back to my mom's house in Long Island, and I had my final binge, and I just carried through the house, eating everything I could find. And um, I started going through her pantry. I was gonna cry. And um, the OA 12 and 12 fell out. And you know, I, you know, like I said, my sister had been in program. And you know, the miracle is not that it fell out. The miracle is that pregnant, bellied, suicidal, in my binge mentality, something gave me the power to like bend over and pick it up. And I went into my mom's room and I closed the door and I read it from tape, from front to back. And you know, the first line that I read was we of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And that sentence was probably the only sentence that has ever changed my life. Because I knew that I wasn't alone and I knew that there was help. And I knew that there was hope. And um, the next month I went into my sister's apartment after not talking to her for a while and I said, you know, Michelle, I'm a compulsive overeater and I can't stop eating and I can't stop, you know, binging or purging and I'm going to kill myself if I don't get help. And she said, you got to go to OA. And she printed out a meeting schedule and, um, you know, February 7th, 2009 was my first meeting. And um, I'm so grateful for my sister for asking all of me. Like, I do not know what I would have done if I didn't find that meeting. And um, it took me 10 months to get abstinent, and I moved out to LA, and um, I moved out here for grad school, and it was like this amazing God-shot opportunity, and I was still binging every day, and I was still blowing it, and I realized that if I didn't get the food under control, like, the only thing that I have to live for is gonna, you know, go under the rug, too. So I got a sponsor, um, And we started working the steps, and it's like I realized when I met with my sister that day, I'd already turned over the first part of step one, which is admitting I'm powerless over food. But you know, you come to the meetings and you hear about program, and you realize that it's really not about the food at all. You know, it says in the big book, liquor is just a symptom, food is just a symptom. I need to get down to my causes and my conditions. And that's the fact that my whole life is unmanageable, and that's talking about my thought life. And that's talking about the fact that I wake up with a mind, you know, that tells me that one bite's not going to hurt me, or that I shouldn't talk to my dad for 10 years, or that I should try to kill myself, or that everybody hates me. And it goes on and on and on, and these are the thoughts that I have when I come into the program. And, you know, I heard things like, watch your thoughts, step back, you know, become a watcher of your mind. And, you know, the more I watch my thoughts, the more I'm propelled into step two, which is coming to believe that a power greater than me is going to restore me to sanity. And what sanity is soundness of mind. You know, a power greater than me is going to change my thinking. 
and I start developing this relationship with a power. I don't know what it is when I come into the room. It's just the power that's in the room, the power that I feel when I leave. And you know, the more I get hope from step two, that hope turns to faith. And that faith turns to me becoming willing one day at a time to turn my life, first to food by committing my food, but then everything over to that power. And I realize that the more I turn things over, you know, the better my life gets. And then four and five, it's like I thought that everybody else was to blame for my eating and putting it down on paper. I realized that I'm not a compulsive reader because I had a dad who put me in a garbage can. You know, I'm a compulsive reader because, you know, I can't stop thinking about myself. And um, I get down, I, I get all that down on four, and then I turn it over to someone on five. And, you know, my first experience with a step five was probably the first time I cried in ten years. My sponsor just said to me, you're okay, you know, it's okay. And then six and seven is like, you know, one of my one of my favorite steps is six and seven. I made a list of all my character defects, and then I made a list of all the opposite assets. And you know, I spend one week on two assets, and I say I try to work on on those assets. So if my defect was judging people, my asset would be acceptance of other people, and I spend the whole week trying to be an acceptance of other people. And then I'd report back to my sponsor at the end of the week and say how I was being an acceptance. And then eight and nine, it's like, it's the last step in clearing away the wreckage of my past and I get to make all the things that I did wrong right. And um, I just flew back to New York and I was there for a couple of days and I met with my dad. and. Um, you know, I hadn't seen him for like 10 years before coming into the program. And I met him for lunch and I said, Dad, I apologize for not seeing you for 10 years. I, don't, I apologize for acting out of defiance. And I didn't say, you know, I hate you because you beat me or I hate you because, you know, you were so mean to my mom or my sister. I said, I love you because you're a child of God and you're a sister. And I said, how can I make things right? And he said, well, I'd like to have a relationship with you. He said, can I call you once in a while? And I said, yeah, but it's not a one-way street. I can call you too. And, you know, my living amends, my dad has just started calling him. You know, and now we, we call each other on the phone. We just, like, shoot the shit. It's so weird what this program can do for you. <laughs> and, um, you know, I... I took my mom to the St. Patrick's Cathedral and I made my amends to her and she burst out crying. I said, I'm so sorry for expecting other things from you, you know. Because the big book talks about expectations and, you know, one of the stories is that my expectations are inversely proportional to my serenity or the other way around. And I can't expect anything from other people. And I'm sorry, Mom. And I told her how much I love her, and I told her all the things she's done for me. And um, for my sister, I just thanked her, you know, for escalating me and bringing me into the program and all the things that she's helped me with. And she looked up, and it was Christmas time, and we were in Columbus Circle, and all the Christmas shops. And she goes, is this my amends? And then at the end of the night, you know, we all were exchanging gifts. 
and she goes, you know, David's a nice to me. It was the best gift that I ever could have gotten. You know, what a miracle. And I made my amends to Whole Foods. <laughs> and um, after my amends, I went and got a cup of coffee, and I spilled my coffee, and I just picked up some napkins, and I started cleaning it up. And the lady turns to me, and she goes, you're cleaning up your mess. You know, nobody ever does that. <laughs> and, you know, she was talking about the coffee, but she wasn't. <laughs> and, you know, so the first step, the first nine steps are about clearing away my past so I can live in today. And, you know, just because I'm on step 10 does not mean that everything is okay because I still wake up with a mind that tells me lies. You know, I don't have the mind that tells me to kill myself anymore, but I have a mind that tells me I'm not good enough. Or I'm never going to get the job I want or the car I want the girlfriend I want, or the house I want, and then, you know, I get the job, and I get the girlfriend, and I get the house, but my mind tells me, you know, that the job doesn't pay enough, or the girlfriend's cheating on me, and the house doesn't have big enough rooms, and nothing's ever enough. And, um, you know, I was just in Israel for a couple of weeks. It was actually a 12-step trip with 30 other people in 12-step programs, and I had to fly out of New York, and I was like... You know, these people are going to like me, have good recovery, have a good message. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, and we all have to meet at the airport. And, um, you know, I got to the airport 15 minutes late. I'm never late. And everybody was already talking to each other, and I froze up. And I went right back to the five-year-old track kid on the playground that people were calling Baby Beluga. And I called my sponsor, and I was like, Matt, I think I'm going to spend the next few weeks in New York. And he goes, David, this is you thinking about you and hung up. And we're kind of on the same way, but now we're like, he doesn't even need to talk to me. I know what he's going to say. But I knew what he was talking about, and I knew what I needed to do. And I went into the bathroom, and I got down on my knees, and I got in the stall, and I said, God, can you be with me? Because my mind is telling me I'm not good enough. My mind is telling me that I'm a freak. My mind is telling me that nobody likes me, so can you protect me from my mind? Like, can you show me that I'm okay, God? But most importantly, can you make me feel that I'm okay? And, you know, I got back up and I went back out, and I had that complete psychic change that the big book talks about, and it stopped being about who's coming up to me, you know, because it's all about me. Who's talking to me? Why isn't anyone coming up to me and, you know, greeting me? And it was like, who can I comfort? And that's what the 11th step prayer is all about. Because it's better to comfort than to be comforted. It's better to love than to be loved. And, you know, the crazy thing is when I do love and when I am of service, I feel that love in my heart. And, you know, that's 10, 11, and 12 for me. It's like recognizing the problem in the moment that I'm in. Going to God and then being of service. And that's my solution for today. You know, 10, 11, and 12 gets me out of my disease every single freaking time. And, um, you know, just to talk about what it's like now, I got through grad school with a 4.0. And it's like, what? Like, I couldn't get through a day of undergrad. Like, I had to lie my way just to graduate. You know, I had to pretend like I was working in L.A. and I would make fake notes and give them to me. It was like crazy the manipulation that I had to do to graduate. And I got a 4.0 with dignity and without picking up the food and without cheating or lying or hurting somebody else. And, you know, now I'm in the job of the industry of my dreams and it's like, 
it's just amazing what happens when you turn over, you know, your life one day at a time. And my meetings have changed. I used to go to a meeting like every day, and you know, now I can only go to like three or four meetings a week. And um, you know, now it's about practicing the principles in all my affairs. I'm going to work later just to help out my boss because she's stressed. Like she didn't ask me to do that. Like where does that come from? And um, that's my time. And I just want to say, if you're feeling like you're alone, or if you're hurt, if you're lonely, you know, there's so much hope in this program. There's so much hope. And, um, you know, just for my sister who's listening, I hope that you get a little bit of hope from this message. And know that, you know, if I could get this recovery, anyone can. So thank you. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own, and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Uh, please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. <coughs> Who would like to ask a question? Jerry. Um, what are your two uh, favorite books that you like to read? So Jerry asked uh, what my two favorite books are, those program books. Really the only two books I read now are, you know, the big book, which is on my phone, which I read probably 20 times a day at work. I probably go to the bathroom. 20 times a day, just during 60 to 63, and remember that, you know, my boss is not my employer, God is, and um, the AA 12 and 12, which is like my manual. Um, thank you. Uh, when you went to Israel, did you go to any Hebrew or English-speaking meetings, and what was that experience like? The speaker, uh, the question was, when I was in Israel, did I go to any Hebrew or English-speaking meetings? Yeah, we had meetings every day. Um, I went to a meeting. I didn't go to any meetings that were in Hebrew, but I went to a meeting right in Tel Aviv. And for me, the experience was, wow, like, it doesn't matter what you look like. Like, anyone can have this disease. Like, there were rabbis, there were city Jews, you know, every type of person was at the meeting. It looks kind of like, you know, do you ever see Star Wars and when they go into that? So it was like that. It's like, wow, like we all have that thing no matter what. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so you mentioned that you didn't have the concept of a higher power. How did you come to believe? The question was, how did I come to believe? Um, in a concept of a higher power. My sponsor tells me that you work a step a year, so right now I'm still coming to believe. Um, and I think every day I'm coming to believe. I didn't really, really, really believe in program until the food obsession was lifted, which happened around step nine and 10 the first time I worked it, which is around my ninth and 10th month of abstinence. Um, and you know, for me, it's about experiences. Like, God is not in a picture 
God does not look like a certain thing. God is in the experiences that I have that it's like, wow, that is not me. Me going to work today, that's not me. You know, me making events for my dad, that's not me. You know, me getting through grad school and having a job that I have now, not me. So. Are there any spiritual practices that you do every day? Are there any spiritual practices that I do every day? Um, I wake up. I get down on my knees, that's the first thing I do in the morning, and I thank God. I don't tell God what I want for the day, I just say thank you, and you know, then I meditate for probably five to ten minutes in the morning, you know, that's like my formal morning, and you know, driving to work, I either make calls or I listen to podcasts, and at night I pray, and um, you know, I meditate for five to ten minutes, and then during the day, I do like a one-minute meditation here or then a two-minute meditation, just always like reconnecting and just like talking to God all day long, asking to be a service. Thank you, David. Would you talk about your experience with forgiveness? <laughs> Would I talk about my experience with forgiveness? Um, yeah, in terms of like making me amends, the first couple sponsors I had were like, you shouldn't make amends to your mom or your dad. And, you know, the sponsor I have now is like, no, you should. Um, because it's not about what they did to you, it's about forgiving other people. And for me, I had to pray. You know, there's a passage in the back of the book in the story that says, you know, we pray for others and we hope that they have everything that we want. And I couldn't even do that, you know, starting out. When people are like, pray for your dad. I couldn't get down on my knees and pray for my dad. There was like a complete block. But I could pray for the willingness to be willing. And that's what it started. I prayed for the willingness to be willing for about six months. And then, you know, it got down to like me praying for my dad but not meaning it. And then, you know, the more I did it, the more in my heart I actually felt forgiveness. I can't explain it. Just like I can't explain God, but like I basically had to ask my way into right thinking. Can you talk about ego and recovery and how you manage your ego? Can you talk about ego and recovery? Um, knowing that I'm not doing anything, you know, that it's all God. I, I think people. Like, anyone can speak at a meeting, you know, that's, that's not anything, but it's about, like, going into the outside world and how you're acting in the outside world. And for me, remembering that, like, anything that I have is God-given. Like, my recovery is not my recovery, it's the recovery. So, you know, people will call me a lot or tell me, like, oh my God, I love your recovery. It's like, no, this isn't my recovery. This is the recovery, just work the freaking stuff. It's like a very simple program, just just do it. And, you know, if it comes across like I'm cocky, I know my sponsor says, like, people call him cocky, and he's like, well, if you, ha- if you do what you do, you can be cocky about the message, too, because it's not your message. It's God. And, you know, if you're experiencing God in the day that you're in, you can be cocky about it, because it's not you. You know, it's God. 
like me getting up here, this is not me at all. You know, I used to sit in the back of the kitchen sink and leave late, or leave early and like come late and not be able to talk to anyone. And you know, when I used to come to meetings, I would read on an index card my pitch because I was so scared of what other people thought about me. But those were the tools that I had coming in. So this is not me. And I just have to remember that in all my affairs. Like, it's not me. My career, it's not me. And it's like very clear to me that it's not me. So, you know, that's how. Thank you very much. Um, do you do a formal step 10 every day in the show? Yeah, great question. Do I do a formal step 10? Um, I've had a lot of different sponsors. Some are very structured and some are more about self-love. The first kind of step 10 that I did was I, I made a list of new character and old character. And on the top of the list, I wrote everything that I did that were in my new character today. Like, I cleaned the, I went to the gym this morning and I cleaned you know, the toilet seat, even though I wasn't the one who picked on it. That's like some new character shit. <laughs> but old character would be like, if I went and tried to find a guy to piss on the seat and pull the mask off. Like that's old character. So I write those things. And, um, you know, the sponsor I have now, is Matt, is like, you know, David, you're, you're using this to beat yourself up, which I do a lot. Like, I'll use my own recovery to beat myself up. So now, so he gave me a thing where it's like the 12 questions that it says in the big book, like, where was I resentful? And I use that to beat myself up. So now my 10th step is I just send in my food and I just send in my gratitude. What's the first thing that I do when it comes to self-loathing? Uh, isolate. And people will call me and I'll say I can't deal with these people. But it's really I can't deal with myself. What's your recovery with that? Um, what's my recovery with that is that I went into another program which really dealt with me not being able to be alone. Um, so the recovery for that is me having the willingness to work 12 steps in another program, and now another program after that. <laughs> but um, it's really when I'm feeling the loneliness come on, going to a higher power <coughs> and taking down your reaction. So, How do you work your program on personal uh, relationships? How do I work my program in personal <laughs> relationships? Um, it's a tricky question. My mom's in program now, and she has a year of sobriety, and I have a spiritual pride around it. Um, she called me with an issue that I've had a lot of recovery around last night, and I brought the program onto her, and she didn't want the program onto her. So I need to really be careful not to drop program on people as a way to like make them feel bad about what they're doing. Um, but what I've done in the last six months, I made a list of my ideal work relationship, my ideal sex relationship. Like I did ideals for everything, 
and you know the work thing has like completely come true. Like everything that I wrote on my ideal work relationship has been true. But like in the day that I'm in, I just ask to be of service. You know, if I can remember that I'm here to be of service, then like walking my boss's dog is not going to make me resentful. It's just another opportunity to be of service. Um, in terms of like intimate relationships, I think you should ask someone else about that. <laughs> my recovery is not, you know, I'm working on it. But again, I'm working another program around it. But that is recovery that I am not going to expect all the answers because I really don't. Uh, thank you very much. Um, for me, knowing lots of people in both that program, you know, there are some of us who feel loved, some of us who feel lovable, and many of us don't feel them both. And could you talk a little bit about how if all of you feel about those things and whether you think you are, have or are trying to get the most? Yeah. Um, the question was, can you Loved and lovable. They're different things. Just around feeling loved and lovable. Um, around feeling loved, I have a sponsee who's always like, well, nobody calls me and nobody loves me. And I flip it and I say, well, who are you loving today? Who are you calling? You know, that's what the St. Francis Fair is all about. It's not about people loving me. It's about who am I giving it to? And I know the more I give it, the more I get it. Feeling lovable, um, I'm, it's a daily thing. Like, I used to not be able to look at myself in the mirror at yoga. Like, I couldn't take my shirt off. I would just be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you are fat. I would, just, I would spend the whole yoga class just beating myself up. Now, I'm getting to a place where it's like, God, I need, when I look in the mirror, I got to bring God in. God can help me look in the mirror or else I'm going to beat myself up. <coughs> so, like, without God, I can't do anything. So, like, it sounds so, like, self-healthy cheesy, but, like, without a higher power, I can't do anything. I can't even look in the freaking mirror or I'll beat myself up and then go to the food. So how does, like, God come to you? Is it like this, is it like, like a thought? Is it like, can you tell when it's like God? You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're, you say you don't want to look in the mirror because you say you hear all these things and then you have God to help you and then you like, can you feel like yeah. flipped? It's like, the question was, how do I know when, like, God has come to me? I guess kind of opposed to when it's myself. I think part of why I try to connect so much and work such a strong program is because if I don't, the other option is I am freaking crazy. Like, I'm really a crazy person. Um, so for me, it's very clear when I'm with God and when I'm with self. Because when I'm with self, I'm you know, the windows are down and I'm flicking people off on the freeway and I have a baseball that I'm trying to kill everyone. So like, yes, a couple of days ago, my boss took me to a meeting that he had and it was in a bar in a swanky hotel. And, um, and I was just like very resentful of the whole situation. And I was very in self and like, 
10 minutes had gone by and I hadn't said a word to anyone in the meeting. And, you know, it was just totally in my head. And I went into the bathroom and I got down on my knees and I just said, God, can you help me? And, like, I felt a great peace come over me. And, like, my thoughts changed. Like, it says in the big book, we have a complete psychic change. Like, my thoughts change. It's not about me. It's about, like, going to help somebody. So, for me, it's like, when I go to God, I, I do feel a peace in my heart. Um, and it's a very tangible thing. But it's also in my thoughts. Like, and, you know, with that comes my intention. Like, I'm in another program, and there's someone who talks about intention a lot. And she says, you know, the intention of your prayers is so important. I can't say the serenity prayer with a donut in my mouth. You know, I need to really mean it. I really need to show God how badly I want to recover, how badly I want to be of service. And when I go, you know, with real intention in my heart, like, God comes in and heals my heart. But, you know, if I'm coming, if I'm, like, drinking and saying, God, can you be with me? Then it's total BS. So, like, for me, it's intention. And, like, God knows my intention. What's my actual relationship with food today? I eat three meals a day. Um, I eat a variation of two breakfasts. One is contingent on if I go to the gym in the morning and I eat that breakfast after. Um, and to be honest, like, someone, I don't know if this is breaking around and maybe they carry in the program. When I first came in, she spoke in a meeting. She's like, I eat three intuitive meals a day. When I'm hungry, I eat. And I just eat, you know, intuitively. And I get that now. Like, I eat three meals a day and it's like, it's like fuel. Like, that doesn't make sense coming in to me because, like, I'm so wrapped up in food and I have this thing and it's still a part of me. But, like, I eat three meals a day, basically the same thing every day, and it doesn't call to me. I don't feel like eating more. Like, for me, I'll put more agave in my coffee. That's, like, a messy day today. Or I'll drink a couple of, like, diet sodas. Like, I've been drinking, like, a six-pack of diet soda every other night. So, like, in terms of the food, it's, like, three meals a day, no extra food. And it's just, like, my sponsor says, you know, we don't fuck around with the food. Like, that's the first part of step one. We don't fuck around with the food. We put down the food until we learn how to live our lives. And if I'm still in the food, like, I haven't really started working the program. Because the program is once you put down the food. But you can't really be working the 12 steps in AA once you're still drinking. So. And for me, last thing, Tony, I'm sorry, my abstinence is my sobriety. If I go out, I think that I'm going to die. And if I have that, like, desperation, I'm not going to pick up the food. I'm just not going to pick up flour and sugar. In my head, I'm going to go out and die if I do. So, thank you. Thank you.